You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguda, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90min. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show the brilliant Mike Stavrou. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Not enjoying this turn of the weather. It's really bloody cold outside. It's freezing, mate. Absolutely freezing. I, I just wanted to go back to summer because I feel like it just went so fast. It, it always does. The the good weather always goes fast, but I feel like, from my perspective, if I've not been on holiday, it's not really a summer. So, yeah, have we really had one? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get away this summer, and and it it's yeah, I know what you mean. If like it just feels like it's just a continuation of yeah the miserableness of England without any sort of break from it. Basically. So yeah, to- totally get where you're coming from. Right on today's edition, we're going to be discussing Edu and whether or not the Brazilian has silenced his critics. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the transfer business and uh, assessing it that has been uh, done by the club during Edu's tenure. We'll be talking about what we might need to do in January and possibly beyond that. And we'll start our build up towards the weekend's game where Arsenal take on Watford at the Emirates Stadium. Um, Edu is somebody, Mike, who, when it goes right, is naturally going to get loads of praise. And when it goes wrong, is going to be a bit of a scapegoat because of the role that he has at the club. He's a technical director. He was appointed in June 2019. A lot of people raised their eyebrows at it. Not very experienced in European football anyway in this kind of role. And I think it seemed like a bit of a gamble to people. It still feels like a bit of a gamble because there's no real track record there. But I would say that I've been quite pleased with the work that Edu's done at the club. Um, Before we go into individual players, how would you assess Edu's kind of, I guess, position or or Edu's role at the club since he arrived back in the summer of 2019? Yeah, I guess for me, it's been a bit of a mixed bag because we've seen some good transfers. We've seen some bad. We're going to get all into all of them but I think when you've sort of come into the club that we are every single deal is going to be scrutinized and I think as well he has not been helped by looking at some of the the previous owners and the the previous sort of guys that have been in charge of transfers and that almost makes it that much more difficult because it's like all right when are things finally going to change for us in terms of transfers yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think there was a lot of hangover from deals that have been done in the past. But one of the things I take a lot of encouragement from with regards to Edu is the fact that it's not just the it's not just the willingness to, you know, buy new players, but the willingness and the, and the, the competence in terms of getting people to commit to the club that maybe otherwise might not have done. Also, you've got to add to that the fact that he's been quite willing, along with the club, to just rip up the contracts of players who, you know, have not been um, very good, to put it quite frankly. So I think when you look at Edu's tenure overall, there are lots and lots of positives. Are there a few negatives? Are there players in, and we'll get into individuals in just a moment or so, but are there players that have come in under his watch that have flopped? Yeah, you know, of course there are. And you won't find a technical director or director of football, depending on what you want to call them, anywhere in the world who's got a completely unblemished 100% success rate in that department. So for me, it is important that when we assess the transfers that have been made by Edu, we are fair in the way we do that. And we understand and we do it knowing that there will be, under anybody, transfers made that just don't work out. It's part and parcel of football. And I think that's the bit that maybe some people kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is the standard in some people's eyes in terms of the percentage of transfers that you need to get right is probably a little bit higher than what is the reality. So, Mike, I know you've made a list of the players that have come in since Edu arrived at the club in this capacity. Let's start working our way through them. Who do you want to start off with? Yeah, so I think, should we start positively? Because, uh, you know, we try and put a positive spin on things over here. 
Um, so I'll go way back to the first window. So 1920, when he first sort of was technical director and we signed uh, Kieran Tierney and uh, Gabriel Martinelli in the same window. Um, obviously, Kieran Tierney has become a huge, huge part of, of the team. He is a leader. He is uh, one of the best left backs we've had at the club, in my opinion, in a long, long time. Um, and then we've got Gabriel Martelli, who was a complete unknown, signed for a pittance from a Brazilian club and has gone on to do really, really well. When we had a bit of a debate about him, yes, I think his progress has, has stalled a little bit, but um, he is a great prospect and he's going to be a good player in the future. So those two, I don't think you can really argue with. Yeah, I agree. Just for those of you watching on YouTube, Mike is not still talking. The video is just lagging a little bit from his end. So I'm not cutting across him, I promise. But yeah, look, I think when you mention those two players, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely spot on. Gabriel Martinelli, very exciting young prospect. We've had a lot of debates and chats about him in recent months as to regards or with regards to whether or not he's ready just yet, whether or not we're expecting too much from him. And that's a bit of an ongoing debate at the moment. But in terms of talent wise and in terms of the you know the the brilliance in in essentially to spot and identify that talent and then make a deal happen is obviously something that Edu needs to take uh, credit for being brazilian i'm sure he had some kind of uh, influence and some kind of i guess you know really powerful impact on this one on this particular deal tierney's coming as you say he's been really really good so i think that's a pretty a uh, good two to start off with. Um, but there were some around about that period as well, Mike, that that weren't so good or haven't turned out to be as good as we'd have hoped. Yeah, uh, Pablo Murray, I think, is one that has been a bad signing. I think it's absolutely fair to say he's not really cut the mustard. I remember, I think, what, one of his first starts, it was against uh, Manchester City and he got absolutely torn to shreds and, you know, his lack of pace was clear for everyone to see. Um, he's one that is probably not going to get much game time this season and will just be another one, I guess, as like an emergency, emergency option at centre back. Now we have now we've improved them. Um, and and yeah, the, the another one, I guess, is Cedric Suarez as well. Um, we're, we're still waiting to see whether he's going to really be a, a good signing, but I don't think he really will be. A lot of issues there in terms of like he's defensive, attacking, uh, going forward, and um. I guess we'll just, it's one where, again, another backup, but not not really a good sign. I think these ones have to be put into the sort of category of signed as backups, signed as rotation players. But at the moment, where we want to go as a team, we want to have good players in as backups. Because you look at the situation last season, Kieran Tierney, when he was out, we were absolutely screwed at left back. And now... We've reinforced and brought it brought in Nuno Tavares, and we didn't have to splash a load of money, a load of wages to do that. We bought a sort of young, um, up and coming player who who looks good, and um, and you know he he would develop and and challenge Tierney in the future. I'm sure. I mean, you could maybe even make the case that that in a few years Nuno Tavares might even be just the starting left back. I mean, based on where things go, based on Tierney's injury record. So um, I think with these deals, you sort of have to look at it and sort of think their sort of proposed role in the team. But then we're going to get on to one, which we spoke about last week as well. Another bad one for me, Nicolas Pepe. I, I know you said you've made peace with the deal and made peace with the fact that we overpaid for him. And But when when it goes down in the history books, it will he, I think, will be looked at as a bit of a flop. I think one of the things that you've got to take into consideration here, though, is that Raul Sanlei was at the club at that time as well, right? Yeah, um, yeah that's true. So Edu, you know, we'll, if we're equally, if we're going to give him praise for the good deals, then we've got to hold him partly responsible for the bad ones as well. But I guess, and there's an article that, that came out that uh, around about the time that Raul Sanlei left the club that I had a, a good look at, and it was talking about the three deals that he was involved in that essentially um, made Arsenal feel that, you know, he he was the wrong man and someone that shouldn't be at the club at, anymore and shouldn't have that powerful position. And one of them was Nicolas Pepe. So I think, he could, look, if we're going to give Edu praise for the Tierney-Martinelli deals or being a part of that, then we have to hold him partly accountable for Nicolas Pepe. But I'll, I'll say this, I think Edu 
in isolation doesn't sign Nicolas Pepe. I do agree that obviously we've paid well over the odds for him and we're hoping that he is going to, at some point in his Arsenal career, show form that resembles a player even in the same kind of universe as, of a £72 million player. But as you said, I think I've made peace with that and I just understand that we massively overpaid and, and it is what it is. But in terms of his performances, they've been up and down. You know, at times he's shown flashes, at times he's been effective, at times he's been completely anonymous. And I think if we're talking about this deal and you, you know, you can't ignore the price tag, then I think we have to say this one was a failure, surely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all want him to do well. We're all willing him on. We all see the clear talent that, that is there in terms of Pepe, but he's just not produced it uh, anywhere near enough and anywhere near the level that we know we can do, you know, based on what, what we've seen from him in the past when he was at Lille. He was, you know, incredible in his final season, scored a ton of goals, played up front as well. Really dangerous player, you know, lightning quick on the counter attack, good finisher. And we've seen, you know, bits of that at Arsenal, but just nowhere near enough. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. If we're going to praise Edu for getting in the likes of Tierney, then we have to say that he must have been a part of it. I know Roel was at the club at the time, but I'm sure as a technical director, he would have been briefed and he would have known about, about the deal, especially considering it was such a huge deal, like club record signing. We're not talking about, you know, 40, yeah. 50 million pound player. This is our most expensive player ever. So it, it, it would have been a big thing. Um, just uh, just moving on, moving forward slightly again. Um, another bad one, unfortunately, Willian. Um, I think this goes beyond the the word bad. I think it's terrible, awful. Uh, I mean, how, but let how me ask you this, Mike, to, to describe it. Let me ask you this: Did you think that when it was announced? I. I was sort of mixed because I knew that he'd had a good season and I knew the the level that Willian can output. But I'd heard from a lot of Chelsea fans that he's extremely inconsistent um, and he sort of shows it in flashes. Um, so I was I was sort of thinking, OK, it's a decent deal. My number one concern was the money because I was like, all right, he's in his 30s. He's, he's coming over. He's probably not going to be playing at Chelsea much because they've just signed a whole host of, of attacking players what is his sort of motivation for, for coming here? Like, what does he want to prove? He's, he's won, you know, the Champions League. He's won the Premier League. What else does he really need to do in his career? Did I think he would flop to the extent that he has done? Absolutely not. But I was questioning it at the time and thinking, you know, what are we really doing here? Like, it would, it just sort of seemed a bit slapdash with sort of the the signings and the way that the team was was going at the time. It was like, where what are we doing? Because we still had the likes of like Mustafi, Socrates, Ozil at the club, and those were players that we wanted to get out who were sort of aging and coming towards the end. And then we're paying God knows how much for Willie and three hundred grand a week to to bring him in. And obviously, it worked out terribly. I thought he was uh, he was awful. Um, didn't really, I think he scored one goal, did he? Maybe if, if, if that, um, and it was just, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a disaster. We are just lucky really that he ripped up his contract. Cause I can't think of many players that would really say, oh, you know what? It's been that bad here. I'm just going to, I don't even want the money now. I just, I just want out. And he's, uh, and he's obviously gone. I don't think we'd do that, Harry, to be honest. I, I would certainly wouldn't do that. I would have st stuck around for at least another year. Yeah, same. You probably need that contract if you uh, if you want to eat at Salt Bay's new restaurant. Who William <laughs> seems to be uh, seems to be quite pally with, um, unless he gets mates rates. Don't know, but on the William thing, I guess for me at the time, I, what I don't want to be is I don't want to be a hindsight merchant. In that, fine, we're going to discuss these transfers and talk about whether or not they were successful or not. That's what we're here to do. But equally, I'm not going to stick the knife in too much on the Willian deal because I was someone who was actually in favour of it at the time. Now, why was I in favour of it? Because I felt like when you looked at those wide positions, when you looked at the areas, uh, that particular area of the team and the options available to Mikel Arteta, I think it was largely made up of inexperienced players. You looked at Saka, Smith-Rowe, um, you know, or Saka more so at the time. Reese Nelson was more in the picture at the time that we made that deal done. People were talking about him potentially breaking in etc etc smithrow hadn't even broken into the side to be fair he was probably out on loan at that point but i guess the point i'm trying to make is that i looked at that 
group of players that were available to Mikel Arteta. And I felt like we could do with adding a bit more consistency and a bit more experience. I think with Willian, when you take somebody on who is a free agent, you are always going to have to pay over the odds salary-wise. It's the price you pay for avoiding paying a transfer fee. And I think what happens in those situations is players know that there's no transfer fee involved. Therefore, they push their demands up knowing that they've got that kind of sweetener that they can say to clubs, well, you don't have to pay for me. You don't have to buy me off of another team. I will join you if you meet my demands. Therefore, it's not as difficult to get those deals done. So I always accept that when you do a free transfer, I mean, look at Ser Kolasinac, right? We picked him up on a free transfer from Schalke and we paid over the odds salary-wise. That's just the way it works. So I wasn't overly bothered about the money because, like I said, if you don't pay a transfer fee, then, you know, you you can afford essentially to to commit to a bigger contract. But what I didn't envisage was him being so bad. Like you said, I didn't envisage him being so lacklustre. I thought he would do a lot more. I thought he would impact the team a lot more. But can I sit here hand on heart and say, at the time, I thought it was the wrong decision and now I've been proved right? No, because I thought it was actually quite a smart move and quite a shrewd one. I think the three-year contract was always something that led me to raise my eyebrows and question whether that was right. But sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do to get the player to sign. And I think that's how Arsenal saw it. But look, credit to Willian, as you said, because he didn't hang around and stink the place out for any longer than just that one season. He's now back in Brazil playing his football and good luck to him. You know, it takes a big man to do that and it takes a good character to do that. And at times throughout his career, Willian has been labelled as a bit of a mercenary and a bit of a you know, one of those kind of characters. So to hear that and to see that unfold was obviously quite pleasing. But I'll I'll just make that point that I made right at the top of the show again. It's a transfer that went badly and there are a number of them. But how high can we realistically set the bar when it comes to this in terms of the percentage of transfers that we're going to call a success? I think this was a poor one. Um, and, and, And it is what it is. I mean, you know, Nothing really more to add, I guess. No, I mean, yeah, it, it was a bad decision. It was uh, a bad call. I don't really see us doing that sort of deal in the future or right about now because I think we've sort of done the... the. I'm not, I wouldn't say the rebuilding project is anywhere near done, but I think we've done a lot of the, the, the legwork in terms of getting those older, more senior players who are maybe underperforming out. I think when we got rid of the likes of uh, Mustafi and... And and Özil and uh, also uh, our beloved Sokratis Babastathobolos went, uh, even though he's he's a fellow Greek, he, uh, he he wasn't the best. Bless him, lost quite a bit of pace. Was good at Dortmund, wasn't he? But um, yeah, we could sort of getting those players out was really really tough thing because you have to bring in the new players and it, it's it's allowed us to sort of play youth and do project youth now because we don't have those players. On, on the wage bill, essentially, who are on a lot of wages and maybe not um, performing as, as well as we'd hope as senior players. So I think a lot of that work is done, which is why I don't really think we need the short-term fixes like the likes of Willian, like a sort of Cedric, um, like a Pablo Murray, that will sort of fill gaps. And I know we're going to talk about potential January signings, but I think that's maybe why I would be a little bit reluctant to go down the the route of an emergency option in midfield, like uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain has been spoken about. I think I'd be reluctant to do that because it's not forward planning. It's it's a short-term thing. You're not going to be able to offer him the sort of games that he wants. He's not at the particular level that we want. He will be okay as a sort of stopgap until the end of the season or, you know, when we lose midfielders uh, through the African Cup of Nations. But it's not really the sort of deal that we should be doing. Um just looking at deals that that we have done that that have worked out. Uh, another one there is Gabriel. Um, I think he is the best defender at, at the club at the moment. Uh, I think he's shown that this season. Um, definitely showed it at the beginning of last season, but sort of tailed off. I think he got COVID, got got an injury, and never really looked the same. But uh, this season, he's just been incredible. I mean, the, the fact that the guy has broken a tooth about on two occasions. That told you everything you need to know about his commitment. That, that he he puts his head everywhere. He's fast. He's strong. He he you know he's he's uh, he's willing to bully defenders, which is what you want. And he's got the personality first and foremost. 
Um, and what was it? About 23 million we paid for him, 27 maybe. So it's somewhere in that range. I think United were also interested. I think that was a great, great deal that we did. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he's there and I'm glad he's building a really strong partnership with Ben White. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just just a brief pause and then and then we'll come back to the discussion. I just want to quickly say to those of you watching us live right now on YouTube, if you haven't done so already, please do hit the like button. There's well over 150 of you watching us live right this minute across the multiple platforms. We've only got 32 likes on the board, though. Let's get that up as close to 100 as we possibly can. I did put a poll pinned in the YouTube comments, Mike, where I asked the question, has Arsenal's summer transfer business convinced you the club is in safe hands with Edu. And at the moment, 68% of the people who have voted feel that the club is in good hands with Edu as the technical director. Now, that has probably changed dramatically having seen some of these summer signings perform this season. Because I think Absolutely. when the transfer window ended, the, the reviews that I saw, you know, people discussing it and, and assessing it were quite mixed. So to see that so kind of overwhelmingly in Edu's favour now, obviously, is a sign of what's happened in the last sort of six to eight weeks. But just before we continue to talk through some individual players, is it fair to say, because you mentioned Cedric, Pablo Marie, which to me felt like stopgap signings um, and felt like signings we were making to kind of get us by, but they weren't necessarily part of the longer term recruitment drive. So is it fair to say that we have to divide the players that Arsenal have signed under Edu's watch into two categories? One of them being mainstays, players that we see as being part of the club's long-term future. The Whites, the the Gabriels, the Tierneys, the, you know, the Lokongas, the Tomiyasus. And then the other category of players where we've had to plug holes and we've had to make some low-risk signings in order to just get the squad by. It is it is fair to make that divide, isn't it? Because as a technical director, if I'm a manager and I come to you and I say, I need a right-back, there's a difference between me saying I need a right back to be in my first 11 week in, week out and me coming and saying I need a right back to get me through the next few months. Yeah, definitely. I think you put it almost in the bracket of price, um, sort of squad, if they're squad player, first team player, starting 11, you know, main player. It's all, it's all based on that. So I think maybe by comparison, you can do Nicolas Pepe and Ben White both you know big money signings both got potential both played at, at the highest level and both would be expected to be starting 11 um yeah. and then maybe you could look further down and look at Cedric who is obviously going to be a backup and then and then Nuno Tavares so i think if you're looking at it that way yeah pepe was a flop but at the moment ben white looks a looks a top signing uh, Cedric, I think I think can be put in a category of flop, but then we've signed someone like Nuno Tavares, who is doing a very similar role but doing it better. So maybe that is improving. Maybe we're in a place now where we can afford to take a bit of a punt on on a younger player in a position that we don't need desperately um, because it's it's not always going to work out. I mean, Nuno Tavares so far has been good, but you, you never know how he's really going to develop. He, he could have been a younger player that that would never sort of fulfill his potential. I guess the, the gamble is you don't really know what you're getting because he's not played loads of senior football. But with someone like Cedric, I guess he's a bit more of a safe bet, but has a lower ceiling. So I think it's all about the sort of direction that, that they want to take. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if you would have done this poll after the Man City game and we've just been batted 5-0 and none of the the sort of new players were really playing. Uh, I think Ben White was out at the time as well. I think that would have been very, very low, the trust in, in Edu. But thankfully, I think it sort of looks like the the new signings have been, have all been good. I, I can't really criticise any of them. I think, you know, Tommy Yasu, Ben White, um, Sambi Lokonga, who probably wasn't expected to play. I mean, when they're all on the pitch, we look like a completely different team. And it looks like, what we've been building towards. And I think as well, an important sort of point to make is um, Arteta has been more involved in the, in the transfers last, last year. And it's important because at the end of the day, Arteta knows in his head what he wants to do. He can transmit that as much as he wants to the, to the sort of board members in Edu. But if he has a direct say in it, he's he's going to be yeah. able to get the players he wants and, and do it the way that he wants to play. Like a shining example of that 
is uh is Takehiro Tomiyasu and it sort of feels like before him we were pigeonholing right backs into playing that sort of role of being a half center back half right back who doesn't really venture forward too much and just tucks in and allowing Tierney to to do his work on the other side and now because Arteta's probably had that input and been influential in that he's been able to talk to the player he's been able to sort of research into that use the scouts as well obviously but see and he's like this is exactly the guy that I want because of this and this and this and then us as fans we're beginning to understand that I think yeah. a lot of the frustrations with, with with Arteta has been before is that when it's not really works and we've been seeing him do things like when the team's been unbalanced with with uh, Bellerin playing that role and, and, and Tierney being on the left, it's not really worked out. But I think now we're seeing the sort of fruits of the labour in the transfer market and it's, it's a positive, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I use the term stopgap for some of those signings. Maybe that was the wrong term because they have been given significant contracts in terms of the length. Maybe the right term is squad players. They're squad players. You know, you can say that, you know, we need to have better than that. And you can say that we need to demand a higher caliber of player. But ultimately, it's not easy to find players who are willing to come and play that role at a football club, to be the third or fourth choice centre-back like Pablo Marie knows he is, to be the th- the second, third choice right back like Cedric knows he is. Um, so, I, I, yeah, stop gap is probably not the right term. Um, so I'll go back and correct myself on that. But probably squad player is the better term. And I think that's yeah. that's what those guys are. Um, just before we continue to talk about the signings, um, because, you know, actually, let's do this first. Let's talk about the guys that have come in this summer, because I think there has been, as you you pointed out, a direct correlation between Mikel Arteta stepping up to the manager role, as well as the the quality of the signings improving. So we have to give him some credit in that as well. I don't think we're going to go through each one of them individually because we've talked about them loads throughout the course of the season. But we are talking about Ramsdale, White, Lakonga, Tomiyasu, uh, Tavares. Um, have I missed anyone? Odegaard. Um, you know, we are talking about a group of players that have come in at, you know, during this summer transfer window and have done very, very well. And you mentioned earlier on that it feels like we've done a lot of the work in terms of the rebuild. It feels like we've done a lot of the heavy lifting and now we're going to be in a place where we end up, um, you know, adding one or two each summer to try and improve the team. But it's important that we add one or two of a higher caliber than go and panic by four or five, I I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly what they've done. I think the fact that they, the process to get Ben White was was drawn out and they sort of went back and went back and went back. That was just testament to how much they wanted the player and how much faith they had in him. And I think he's re, uh, repaying that faith. And exactly the same with, with Ramsdale. Sheffield United weren't really being easy negotiators. And we all sat there thinking, why on earth are we spending 30 million on Aaron Ramsdale? And we've all been proved wrong. I mean, I was, I, I'm very happy to eat a humble pie about that and say that I, I questioned Ramsdale. And because I did, I didn't think he was an amazing keeper. Um, I sort of saw the the passing stats that he had and thought, okay, maybe this is a direction. But if you're asking me about what was I convinced by him? Absolutely not. I was thinking we should spend the money elsewhere, but I've been proved so badly wrong. The guy has been monstrous uh, between the sticks. He's been you know, a leader, as as I've said in previous shows, Harry, he's, he's got the character, he's got the right mentality and he's, he's vocal, which is what you need. And I think maybe we lacked a little bit with Bern Leno and the fact that he's literally, he literally replaced Leno, an experienced Germany international after three games is incredible. And, and you know, I think he's kept four clean sheets in, in seven games. Obviously, that incredible save on, on the weekend against Leicester kept us in that game, definitely, because I feel like we were starting to lose a bit of momentum in, in the second half. And those big saves just sort of like invigorate the entire side. And they really, really push you up and, and make you want to fight for the, every single ball because, you know, your keepers just absolutely saved your bacon. So all of them have, have done well. As I said, I think the the only one we have to be a little bit careful with is Lakonga. I don't want him to play too much because we've seen he's been sort of shown, his weaknesses have been shown in the past. And the fact that he's playing so much is a testament to him because he's only 21, 22. And he probably didn't envisage to be playing this much. If Xhaka wasn't out, he probably wouldn't be. So 
yeah, all, all of them done well. And as, as I say, with, with all of them on the pitch, the all all six signings, I think we we look a much better team and absolutely fair play because again, there were a lot of questions over the transfer business. You've spent a hundred. 120 million, 130 million, but you know, United have got Sancho and Ronaldo and Varane, but look where United are now. Now, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to sort of draw comparisons between us because we're at different stages of our, of our sort of, you know, development, but we look like a team and they don't. So obviously we sort of knew what we were doing rather than them shoehorning in Ronaldo, the sort of, you know, one of the best players in the world and saying, you know, nostalgia, just go and do it for us. So yeah. How much does this, because obviously, you know, the way last season ended, I know Arsenal were improved in the second half of last season, but we realised pretty early on that we weren't going to finish in the top six um, when it comes to the Premier League. And a lot of us had kind of hung our hats on the Europa League as a way of getting us back into the Champions League and essentially a bit of a get out of jail free card to kind of get ourselves straight back into the Champions League, kind of the, the cheating route, if you want to call it that. We didn't manage that. And then there was incredible pressure on Mikel Arteta off the back of that. And rightly so. Many people going into this season didn't want to give him time. You know, people kept asking me this same question on this on this podcast. And that question was, how long does Mikel Arteta have before he gets sacked? And even after the first three games, I said, you know, yeah. And admittedly, I had wobbles uh, about Mikel Arteta in various points in his career to date. But I did say that, three games, even five games, even 10 games was not a big enough sample size to judge whether the team had moved forward because of all the factors that we were kind of having to contend with. The fact that this transfer window has up until now looked to be a success, does that buy Mikel Arteta more time in your view? For you as a fan looking at it now, Mm. do you feel like you're obliged to step back a little bit and give him and Edu and all the people operating at the club right now a little bit more time because you've seen something. Yeah, I I think so. And I think the the biggest part of that is 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 the transfers and getting players that he wanted and the fact that they're doing the roles that he wants them to do. And we're seeing, finally seeing the the sort of benefits of that. I mean, it's been a weird old season because we we started it abysmally. And then we sort of started a little bit, got some wins against against Norwich and Burnley, built the built the confidence, but we still really weren't playing that well. And I think we've we've not really played amazingly in in a lot of matches overall. Obviously, Spurs we just blew them away, that but they were awful. And then against against Leicester, I think that was a that was a bit more of a complete performance. Um, and we've not seen it on loads of occasions, but. You've been able to see the signs, Harry. I think like we've started games well this season, definitely. Like within the first twenty minutes, just absolutely blown them away, which is a bit similar to what to what Pep's Man City side do. They sort of, you know, use the sort of high energy at the beginning of the game and just and just go just go for it essentially. But Liverpool too, pro- yeah, Liverpool too. And I, th- I think the problem was we weren't capitalising on the chances that that we made. Um, and I, I said as well in, in, in some of the previous defeats, I was like, all right, well, we're not really creating chances on the ball. So why don't we just press more? Why don't we sort of try and win the ball back quicker and then create opportunities when teams are out of shape? And I think we've we've done that a little bit more. I, I still think we could be better on the ball. I think that the movement can be a bit static and, and rigid at times still, especially when the likes of Odegaard aren't in the team and aren't on song. But what we're doing is we're just playing with such a high intensity because we've we've got the players, the right players, and we've got the fitness, and we've got the sort of plan. It's all sort of coming together. So I think there's there's a mixture between the players, between us seeing the sorts of results on the pitch and seeing the performances that all just lead me to think, all right, he is going to get a bit more time. And I I was with you a little bit. I think I was a bit resigned to him to him going. Eventually, I I didn't really think he'd be the sort of long term manager because of just the, the lack of consistency and the fact that that we could get battered against against Man City and it wasn't a surprise i think that's a sort of not that's not a that's a telling response for a manager the fact that you know that is expected so if we can improve in those big games we've still got some big tests coming up i think yeah he's going to he's going to buy himself a lot more time and i think where we are now at the moment i think he will he will see the the end of the season yeah for sure 
for sure. I, th- I don't think he's going anywhere this season. Um, looking slightly ahead then uh, to January, because, you know, as I say, we, we all accept that a lot of the heavy lifting was done in the summer. I think we all accept that although KSE showed themselves to provide backing in the summer, we're not going to get that sort of window in January. And January windows are, are never like that for anybody, really. Um, so we're probably going to look to add, I think, I think we're probably going to look to add in one area in particular. And for me, that's the midfield. I think when you consider that Thomas Partey will be going to the African Cup of Nations and that Granite Xhaka um, is scheduled to return towards the end of the year, start of the new year, I think it's too big a risk for Arsenal not to bring someone in in midfield because we can't, can we, you know, get by if, for example, Xhaka suffers a setback or we have to play Xhaka and make Niles or Xhaka Elneny, um, you know, sort of for a sustained period of time. Would you agree with me that's got to be the priority area? Because I've heard other people talking about centre-forward, talking about other different positions. For me, that is the standout concern for Arsenal going into the January window and the one that they should be looking to address. Well, before the season, I think I was big on, you know, need a centre-forward, Lacazette and Aubameyang are not doing it. But from what I've seen from Aubameyang the last few weeks, Harry, he's just been... And Arteta even said it as well, which I'm quite surprised, but he just said he's he's a different guy. He was like, I like this version of Aubameyang. And we are seeing a different version. I thought it was just going to be, you know, one great performance in against Spurs because he gets up for the North London derby. He absolutely loves it. I thought that was going to probably be our lot for for a while, for a few months at least. But no, he's been he's been leading the press. He's been working hard. Everything we we wanted him to do for a long time. So I I think at the moment the centre forward position is not somewhere we need to look at changing in January. I think that can be assessed in the summer. Obviously, Lacazette's contract is up then. He's not signed an, an extension, so that will need to be looked at. Uh, but that's not a January concern for me now, just because of how good. Uh, Bamiyang's been so it does come to the midfield but again like I mentioned earlier it's like what do we do I think there needs to be long-term planning in place because we've got obviously our main three central midfielders now are Thomas Partey, Sambi Lukonga and Granite Xhaka I think all those three will be at the club long term but then you've got Maitland-Niles and Elneny who are also midfield so if you're looking to maybe move one of them on in in January or, or the summer, or even two of them, I think you bring someone else in. But if your plan is to keep them, I think you, you, you're you going to struggle to get someone of, of high quality for, for decent value just to plug a gap for this sort of January time or till the end of the season. Because, you know, the African combinations is about a month. It's not an extended period of time. So I think it's dangerous to go and get someone just to have a body in, in the centre of the park when you I, I already have players I don't think that'd be there. it though, Mike. I, I think... The way I look at it is is this. If you want to get back into Europe, which is obviously the, the objective this season, there is plenty of room for two uh, for four central midfielders. They'll get game time, you know, whether it's the Europa League, Europa Conference, whatever it is that we somehow scrape our way into. There'll be extra fixtures and therefore you need a squad. And I think when I look at that group now, I see Partey, I see Xhaka, I see Lekonga as a long-term solution. I'm still not convinced on Ainsley Maitland-Niles and I'm definitely not convinced on Mohamed Elneny. So for me, anyone that you do bring in in January would be with a view to them playing a big role in the squad moving forward. And I think there has to be, uh, you know, Mohamed Elneny is not going to stay, I don't think, beyond the end of this season. And then you've got a decision to make on Ainsley Maitland-Niles and he might prove me wrong, but up until now, I haven't seen enough from him to stop me wanting to dip into the transfer market and bringing somebody else in. So yeah. I feel like whoever does come in, it isn't just a, a January sign-in for that short period of time. I think you can say, we're looking to get back into Europe. Therefore, your role in the squad will be much bigger than it is would be today. And I think that's that's quite important. Yeah, I mean, I, as, as I said, I think there does need to be a plan. I think if we are planning to move on Maitland-Niles or... El Andor Elneny in January or the summer. I think it's absolutely fair enough. Yeah, you, you can bring in a central midfielder. But again, we have to look at it and not rush it. I think we can sort of get through that January period with 
with El Nenny and, and Maitland Niles. It, 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 so? it, it's this it, it's not going to be pretty. It's not. Let's let's be honest. We've got some tough games there, but I think we would be able to to, to do it. Just it's not going to be you know fantastic velvet football like like we've been seeing in the last few weeks, but. We, we can do the job. And I, I just think that in January, your options are limited. So if we're not going to sort of get the player that we really want for the long term, someone that's going to challenge, I think, Xhaka, because I think Lukonga is sort of the long-term replacement for for party. I almost think it's like you don't want to rush it because you don't want to end up in another situation where, like we've seen, you don't want to end up with another signing that sort of not really the guy you want here, but you sort of need someone in January and you, you're you sort of looking to get rid of Maitland-Niles. And, and it just feels a bit wishy-washy to me. Do you know what I mean? I, I want it to be like a top-class player that, that's going to come in there. that That's maybe not, you know, ready to start every single game, but has got an abundance of quality and will challenge the sort of senior players for that position. I think maybe what they need to do is look at a sort of younger profile and have Xhaka and Partey as the sort of two seniors and then have two understudies, Lakonga and someone else. I don't know who that would be, but whoever it is, it's, it's going to cost a pretty penny because January, no one really wants to get rid of their players. So it's got like, one, one I'm thinking now, I can't think of anyone that I would say does that at the moment that we could get yeah. readily available. So I think that's the sort of thing you have to weigh up. I think I, I, I think I agree with you that we can probably muddle through a few weeks. But that for me is dependent on whether Granite Xhaka recovers and recovers well. Because if he doesn't recover, then there's no question in my mind yeah, that we absolutely. have to get someone. Because without him, it, uh, El Nenny and, and Maitland Niles just is not good enough for me. And Lokonga thrown into that mix as well. I think it's almost unfair on Lokonga to partner in with one of those two and expect him to boss the midfield at this stage in his career. So I think if Granite Xhaka is back, looks fit, looks like there's no concerns then I think that you know we can get by for a few weeks and then I'd be like you say reluctant to go and spend money on somebody that isn't going to be part of the longer term future but if Granit Xhaka isn't ready and isn't back fit and you know if there's any doubt or concern over his fitness at the point that Thomas Partey leaves for the African Cup of Nations then I think we do need to bring someone in and that falls into that category of signing we were talking about with um, you know, with with Marie and with Cedric, players yeah. that Edu and Arteta feel that they can probably trust to do the job over a short period of time, as and when they're needed. But players that don't necessarily fall into the category of the long term signings, like White, like Gabriel, like you know all the others that we've discussed. So I think it's going to be really dependent on on what happens with Granite Xhaka. We're going to take um. A short pause to discuss something that's just broken. Uh, but while we're doing that, get your questions in the chat box. I can see there's a few in there already, but pop them in. If I haven't, or if you have put them in already, put them in again with a queue at the beginning. Just makes it easier for me to pick them out and we'll answer some of those for the last sort of seven to 10 minutes of the show. Um, hit the like button as well if you haven't done so already. I can see we're on 80 likes at the moment, but there's over 250 of you watching us right now. So there's no reason why we can't get that over the 100 mark. It really helps the video, really helps the channel. Also subscribe if you haven't done so already. And if you're listening via the audio platforms, please do leave us a review. But Mike, we are live. We're recording this show live. And the news has just broken that Unai Emery, who I discussed at length yesterday, um, has rejected the chance to become the Newcastle United manager. He has released a statement. He says, for all the noise there was yesterday in another country, inside the club, there was transparency and loyalty with the Roig family. They are the owners of Villarreal and with my squad, which is at its maximum and for me is the most important thing. Villarreal is my home and I am 100% committed. Honestly, I'm grateful for the interest of a great club, but even more grateful to be here. And that is why I communicated to Fernando Roig my decision to continue being part of this project. Thanks to the commitment and respect that I feel from the club and my players, which is mutual and reciprocal. I want to thank the fans for the support they've given me and always shown me on Sunday. We have a very important game and I hope we can all together get victory. See you at the Estadio de la Ceramica, which is the home of Villarreal. So just while we're waiting for the questions to come in, Mike, your reaction to Unai Emery rejecting the chance to become the new Newcastle United manager. To publicly reject it as well is quite, quite surprising. We don't really see this sort of thing too often. 
Um, I think almost it come as a little bit of a surprise because it was weird when all the newspaper reports were like, Emery is favourite to take over. He's the front runner. And then they asked him about it in his press conference before before the, the Champions League game. And he was almost like a bit stumped. He was like, yeah, like I, I know they're interested, but there's been no offer. So I think you almost felt a little bit like overawed by that and like, well, hold on. Like I'm still managing Villarreal. I've got a big Champions League game tonight and you're already saying that I'm like in line to take over at Newcastle. So that probably made him take a bit of a step back. Um, it's, it's a shame because I think it would have been interesting seeing back in the Premier League. He's a very sort of like, he he divided the Arsenal fans massively, and I think a lot of them didn't didn't like him whatsoever towards the end of his reign. And I felt a bit sorry Guilty. for him, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look, we 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 all sort of did because we weren't happy with the football. We weren't really, you know. Yeah, we we weren't happy of anything. Essentially, it wouldn't it wasn't going the way we missed out on the on the on the Champions League, and it was just a bitter ending. So I think for him. It would have been a bit of a nice redemption story to, to come back and come back to the Premier League where, you know, many see him as a failure. But Newcastle obviously just doesn't seem like the right fit for him at the moment. I think it's a huge project, huge rebuild. It's contentious. Um, you know, what, how, how many players are they going to bring in? What sort of budget have they got? I think it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. So I don't really blame him. He's got a sort of stable job there. Villarreal, they obviously won the, the Europa League. He's doing well. I it was a bit of a one where, I'd, where I was thinking almost like, why does he want to go and is it the right time? I think they almost need a bit of a transitional manager first uh, to sort of see them through this mad transition that they're going through. And then maybe they can appoint the sort of big name like Emery was. Yeah, it was. it's a weird one for me because I talked about this on one of the episodes we put out yesterday. And I said that it depends on how Newcastle see the next steps forward. So if you're Newcastle United, I agree with you. Is Unai Emery someone who is going to get you out of a relegation fight? I would argue probably not. But then Unai Emery is not elite elite either. He's not Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp or Antonio Conte, for example. So you're in this place where you go, well, we might bring in Unai Emery now, knowing that eventually with all their millions and all their wealth, they're going to want to go up to the next level of coach. But are they going to put another layer in, which is the coach that's going to get him out of the relegation fight? So it's almost like yeah. it needs to be a kind of three-step plan because Emery, for me, is not someone that's right at the very top, but neither is he a relegation fighting manager. He's just outside of the top tier, I would say. And that means that for him, this I don't think this job necessarily appeals to him. And I think that's been proven right. But I did tweet something out this morning. I said, if Unai Emery has indeed turned down the chance to manage Newcastle, and this was when we were starting to hear noises that it was going to fall apart. I said, that's the biggest sign yet that despite their wealth, the club are still miles away from challenging at the top end of the Premier League. The fact that someone like Unai Emery, who is at Villarreal, who are a brilliantly run club and, and everybody kind of likes Villarreal, don't they? Everybody has a warm feeling yeah. towards them because of how small they are and how highly above their weight they've been punching over the last couple of decades. But, you know, it, it, that project, that opportunity to go into Newcastle, even if it means weathering a storm initially, is a massive opportunity for someone. And Newcastle are a much bigger club than Villarreal. So if you're Unai Emery and you're looking at that, you're going... The, the, the fact that you're not convinced by the idea of moving there tells me a lot about how Newcastle is still viewed by people, particularly overseas, who feel that, yes, they've got the wealth, but they're still a million miles away from challenging at the top. So I think it's a bit of a reality check for Newcastle United. Yeah, I, I think so. And look, it's probably the, the right thing for him because, as you say, you need someone who's battle-hardened when you're taking over a team that are fighting for relegation and Emery is someone who needs time to sort of implement his, his ideas. He demands a lot from his players and he, he likes a specific type of player. Not not everyone's going to sort of buy into that immediately and you don't have time. That's the number one thing you don't have in this league, let alone when you're when you're down in the table where, where they are. So it seemed a bit of a strange signing. And yeah, I mean, it's almost like they want the sort of transitional manager now, someone to keep them up, someone who has knowledge of the league. And then I think they'd almost go a bit of a step ahead of Emery when when they've reached that level, when they're settled Premier League status, when they've pumped a bit more money in, into the team, into the squad. 
I think they'd they'd go a little bit above him. So it's almost like what what were their ambitions with Emery? Like obviously they wanted to stay up, but then how far could he really take them currently? And would he even be able to sort of keep them up? Is is it's a questionable one. I think if if you sort of get a manager in who who knows the league well, can keep them up, get that job done, that's out of the way. And then he stays for another year. They get you know a load of a load of players in, and then you target that bigger player, that bigger manager. I mean, there, there's been talks of like Zinedine Zidane and like Antonio Conte was linked to it as well, Steven Gerrard. So it's like it doesn't really make sense why you'd maybe drop down a little bit to, to Emery. You know, all respect to him, but he's not at that level, is he? They're in this weird place, Newcastle, aren't they? Where they need someone who's, as you mentioned, the term battle hardened enough to fight relegation, but also at the same time, someone who's good enough to start off their project, which yeah. means they can't go and get a, let's say for a, for argument's sake, a Sam Allardyce or, or someone like that. It needs to be someone who can do that, can help them get out of trouble in the short term, in the interim, but can also be good enough to attract players and help them kickstart their project. And that's a really difficult sweet spot to find. Let's take some of your questions uh, on today's show. There's plenty in the chat box um, and uh, we'll work through as many of them as we possibly can in the next sort of five to seven minutes. Let's take this one uh, from Don Juan who says, question, can you see Arteta sticking to 4-4-2? Personally, I think it's just a temporary system because it suits our players for now. I think Arteta wants to play four-two-three-one in the future. Mike, your thoughts on this? Well, I spoke about this last week. I still don't think it's really a four-four-two. I think it's not. When you say four-four-two, you think like the traditional two strikers up there. I think Lacazette is playing a, a deeper role, and he's playing the sort of link man role in the absence of of Odegaard, who has been injured and has been out of form. I don't think that will be the plan going forward. I think it is a temporary gap, but at the moment, the form that that Lacazette is in. He's he's sort of undroppable, so it's almost like he's stumbled into this this system um, and this sort of way of playing. You know, Abamian out top, Lacazette sort of close to him, but dropping off at times and creating. So I think he will stick with it until it it starts not to work. I mean, the fact that it worked against uh, against Leicester tells you that it's gonna it's, it's gonna be good going forward. Um, when it when he come up against Liverpool, it's gonna be a completely different you know scenario, and we'll yeah. see what happens. But I think for the for the short term future, uh, he he'll stick with it. But I think getting Emil Smith Rowe out on the left has been a bit of a brainwave because we've we tried him in a few positions. We tried him in the number ten. He's good in there, but he's not really the sort of doesn't have the finesse to sort of pick out those passes. Is maybe not as like strong or like can do the sort of centre forward stuff that Lacazette does in there. Um, so he's just perfectly suited for for the left. So I think at the moment it, it's uh, he's suiting the entire team and Saka on the right as well. I, I think it's a good fit at the moment, but I don't think we've signed Odegaard to sort of be out of the squad. So I imagine he will sort of be yeah. phased back in. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is more of a, a temporary fix at the moment. But so... Normally after a Premier League game, right, we do a tactical analysis show the next day and we we look at the system, we look at the formation, we look at some of the off-the-ball stuff. And I never did one in the end or I never put one out for Leicester City. And I'll tell you why. I did all the prep for it. But when I was making notes of the points that I was going to make, I felt like I was going to basically be repeating myself from the Aston Villa game because there were so many similarities in the way that Arsenal uh, attacked, Arsenal pressed, etc., etc. And in the end, I didn't do it. We did a phone-in show instead. But I have got some of the assets that I was going to use for that show saved on uh, on the StreamYard platform now. So just to evidence Mike's point that it isn't a flat 4-4-2. And look, at times against Leicester, it looked that way when Aubameyang dropped deep alongside Lacazette and was helping kind of protect the midfield. So I see why people feel that. But when Arsenal were attacking... It definitely wasn't. Um, and I'll just bring up this uh, this clip here, uh, which is something that I was going to use on the tactical analysis that we never put out. And you can see here in the lead up to Arsenal's second goal, Alexander Lacazette has, hang, has hung back. He's hanging back on the edge of the box and Aubameyang is running into the box, taking defenders with him, right? As a centre forward, you know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has that ability to pull people out of the way. And Lacazette purposely hangs back. 
in in the kind of build-up play. So it isn't necessarily a 4-4-2 then. Also, there's another uh, example of it somewhere else that I've got. Have I got it here? Yeah, you can see it again a little bit earlier on in the move. Saka carrying the ball down the right-hand side. The gap between Aubameyang and Lacazette is quite significant. And Lacazette is hoping to arrive late, is planning to arrive mm. on the edge of the penalty area, as opposed to busting a gut to get up there straight away. And that is deliberate. That is not something that happens by accident. So, yes, off the ball at times on on, um, on Saturday, it was Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Last Saturday, we, we sat in a 4-4-2. But it isn't that rigid. It, there is a lot more fluency to it. And I think those those clips there just evidence that. Let's take a couple more um, questions. Uh, Dave Atkinson says, come on. If you hate Tottenham, hit the like button. Yes, make sure you yeah. do. <laughs> Skipster says, Graham's tactical insight on AFTV was very good. Look, Graham's insight is always good. Graham is fantastic. Check that video out if you haven't done so already. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. I watched it yesterday. Um, let's see what else we've got. Jid F32 says, do you think Xhaka will be given the same? He's coming back from injury leeway from the fans that Partey endlessly got last season. I can tell you that will absolutely not be the case no. with Granite Xhaka. Um, he is going to get pelters from the day he returns. There's no doubt about that uh, in my mind. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. Just scrolling through, looking to pick something out. Um, da -da 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 -da. Big hello to NSWXUZI Zuzia. I think I've said that right. He says, Great show as usual, Harry. Thank you for putting me on the other night. You're the absolute best. He joined on our phone. And thank you for coming on, mate. Uh, Steve Stone with a good question. I'll put this to you first, Mike, and then I'll answer it. What mark would you give Edu out of 10 for the job he's done so far? Um, well, that's odds. Uh, I will go for a six and a half. Because although this this transfer window, I think you can say that all of them have been hit so far. I think every single player that we signed has been a hit. I think when you look back at, at previous ones, there are some question marks like Willian, like Cedric, like Pablo Murray, ones we've spoken about. David Luiz is another one where it's like, yeah, he did okay, but you know there was a lot of mistakes in there. So I think overall... It, it will be a 6.5. And I think right in this window, just the, the window that's gone, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a nine. Um, so I think that that just shows me there's an improvement. There's there's an improved direction of travel. Um, and I just hope that when we do splash out the sort of big money in the future, it's on the right players and we do our, our sort of due due diligence with, with that, which I'm, I'm sure we'll do. And, I'm, and as I said before, I think Arteta's in influence on the transfers is is uh is made a huge difference i'm going to give him a seven overall because there were a few transfers that we we discussed earlier on in the show that didn't work out that haven't worked out that were quite frankly disaster classes i think as i say though you, you know that will happen to every technical director that will happen to every director of football there isn't a single one ever in the history of football that got every single signing right so I think you have to consider that when when discussing them. I think for me, the fact that Edu's been instrumental in helping to get rid of some of the deadwood, and that meant that the club had to pay some of these players off in some cases to get them out of the club quickly. I think that's obviously something that works in his favour. The fact that he's brought in some decent players is obviously the, the main crux of it. But for me as well, the fact that, he's managed to get certain players to commit their futures to the club is a part of what the, or is a part of the work that Edu's done. That's often overlooked. Yeah, You've got to think Martinelli signed a new contract player that we all adore. Bukayo Saka, Emil Smith Rowe, Kieran Tierney, all of these players um, in recent times have committed long-term well. futures no, to the that's club. Balogun, Emil Smith Rowe. So, you know, they've, They've managed to sell the project to those within as well. And that's equally as important as selling it sometimes to those outside. You have to keep the people that are in and around the club at the moment engaged and the players that you feel can help you get to where you need to be. So I think that's a big part of his work that sometimes goes under the radar. And so I'm going to give him a seven. It's not perfect, but it's better than average, in my opinion. So um, that's what I'm going to give him. Right, Mike, I think we're going to leave it there, mate. Um, 
good chatting to you as always. Uh, we had a couple of issues with the video. That's why uh, Mike's not been on camera uh, for the majority of the show. But the great thing is you got to hear his uh, beautiful tones and fantastic opinions. Mike, how can people keep up to date with you via social media? How can they follow you and uh, keep up to date with your work? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter at Mike underscore Stavru as it's spelt on, on the screen. So, yeah, give me a follow. Make sure you do. Uh, give us a follow at Chronicles underscore AFC on Twitter. I never promote a Twitter account. I need to start doing that. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're new. Make sure you're subscribed if you're listening via the audio platforms. Hit the like button on your way out and we'll be back very, very soon with more Arsenal and football-related content. Until next time, take care of yourselves and stay safe. Goodbye. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.